Last Sunday, if you missed it, uh, we dedicated the morning to prayer, worship, and praying for one another. God is stirring people across the nation, and there's a hunger level, and I think you're feeling it here, at a level that we have not felt for a while. It's different. And it is not a local trend. I went home last week and found out about a friend's church in Nashville that, you know, its service went till 6 o'clock at night. Another friend's church in California had dramatic healings. This was all just last weekend. I heard the same things from Florida and from Michigan. Testimonies even from within our own group of just some serious change that happened. And it is reiterated to me that he goes where he is wanted. When we show him hunger, he shows up. And it's like this move of God at Asbury has shaken us all, so all of us are going, I want that too. I, w- I might have been a little dull on the inside, I might have been a little tired, I might have been a little consumed with other things, but I really want that too. And as Asbury has brought those public meetings to a close, and as some people have gotten a little bent out of shape about that, and how can they shut that down, I don't think anything can be shut down. I honestly think it was something to stir hunger in our nation so that across the nation people would say, what about me? Now, that hunger, that idea that God would move across a large group of people, it's glorious, but it is also ripe for misunderstanding and mishandling, even by people who might have good motives. You can have good intentions to still end up in a spot where you did not intend to go. Cadence and I went to New York City uh, last August, I guess. Never been to New York City in my life. So we, I, we're going to see it, man. Little girl and I walked seven or eight miles a day just all over Manhattan. We had a blast. We wanted to see the Freedom Tower. So we the address, and we go to the Freedom Tower, and there's the glass door, and I walk in, and I am maybe two steps in the door when a very large man in a suit with an earpiece stepped up to me and said, you don't belong here. Kind of, well, that's, you know, a little harsh, but uh, he, he said, this is the work entrance. You don't belong here. And something about, you know, my t-shirt and jeans, I don't know what it was. He knew I didn't belong there. I had good motives, but I ended up a space I didn't mean to go. As we encounter the Lord and we express hunger for him, if we are not careful about how and where we walk, we could actually end up in a spot we did not intend to go. That happens when you go places you've never walked before. So as a church, many of us have never walked where we are going. So we want to tread lightly, we want to walk carefully, and we want to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying so we don't inadvertently end up someplace we didn't mean to go or he did not want us to go. Isaiah 30 says that your ears shall hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it. He lives to give us instruction about how we're going to walk and where we're going to go. So we want to hear that voice and we want to walk accordingly. Now, if you know me well, you know I have the lowest rate of FOMO in the world. I have no fear of missing out. There will always be another big meeting. I don't care that much. I just, I don't care, all right? Uh, Probably sometimes to my detriment, Kelsey's like, don't you think you want to miss it? No, I don't want to go. So uh, I'm happy. What I do have a fear of is missing hearing him. Like that bothers me. That keeps me up at night. Because I believe that I have the fortitude that if I hear him, I'll answer. But if I don't hear him or if I mishear him, then I'm going to end up, go in a direction I didn't want to go. And this morning we want to talk about people who went a direction they maybe didn't intend to go. And we don't know much about their motives, but we knew, do know they didn't walk in the way that he was speaking. 
and let's just air this out a little bit. This is a weird passage that we're going to read. It's really a weird passage. And it's one you've probably read and wondered, what exactly is going on here? So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Leviticus. Uh, or you can use the, the teaching notes there. If you've got the Version app, point your camera at that. It'll bring up the teaching notes. A lot of us don't spend a, a whole lot of time in Leviticus. There's a ton of technical rules about the sacrificial system and the priesthood, specifically uh, the Levites. In fact, the name Leviticus comes from the name Levi. It's, it's the, that's where that, they get all that. And it outlines the operation of what we came to know as the Levitical priesthood. It contains a lot of direction from God. First seven chapters are all really technical instructions from God. Chapters 8 to 10 then involve the consecration of the priests, and then it goes back into more instructions from God. So it's really kind of thorny, and, and we're going to land in chapter 10 eventually, the tail end of that consecration passage. But before we get to chapter 10, we have to have just a little bit of context, because if you don't get the context for what happens here, you could easily get offended at God. What happens is so strange that if you don't have some understanding of it, it's easy to go, I, I don't know how to deal with a God who did that. Context will often stop you from offense. Have you ever gotten offended at somebody and then realized there was more to the story than you realized? Oh, I just totally wasted like 24 hours of my blood pressure through the roof because I realized there was a reason that happened, right? So context is super, super important. In chapter 9... After all of this instruction from God in the first seven chapters, in chapter 9, Aaron and his sons assemble a sacrifice and they kick off their participation in the Levitical priesthood. It's kind of their ordination, and here's how it all goes down. The beginning of chapter 9, Moses announces that the internship's over. They have explained as much as they're going to explain at this point. They have studied, they've received all this instruction, and now it's go time. We're going to do the thing that we've been told to do. Like the Levites, everything you go through is instruction and preparation for a season. For Aaron and his sons, this is the season. So we're in Leviticus chapter 9, 1 and 2. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. So this is what the Lord has been teaching them for all of these chapters up till now. And Moses gives them all the steps and he gathers them together and he said, let's do the thing. They go through all of these steps and follow the instructions and through it all, Moses explains the goal in verse six. Moses said, this is the thing the Lord commanded you to do that the glory of the Lord would appear to you. He said, all these instructions, all the weird things to kill the calf, lay it on the side, do this, all of this is so that you would see the glory of the Lord. He says, we're doing all of this because we need his presence. All the sacrifices, all the details, all the difficulty is because we are desperate to meet with God. And God has laid out all of these chapters to make it doable. I was going to say simple. It's not simple, but it's doable. If there were a plan that would mean God's presence would come, would you follow the plan? Like if you had some sort of instruction manual, would you read the manual? 
So Aaron goes through all the steps, kills the sacrifice, dips his finger in the blood, puts it on the horns of the altar, does the wave offering, does the whole bit, and then he turns and he blesses the people. And when they turn to the people, the Bible says, the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people. Now this is a game changer. Because up till now, it's been Moses goes up the mountain, the glory of the Lord appears to Moses, he comes down, he is radiant, he's shining, but they're still using Mo Moses as a buffer zone, all right? Moses, you go talk to him, then you come back. But here the sacrifice is made and the glory of the Lord appears to all people. This isn't Asbury, this isn't revival, this is really the Lord revealing himself in a deep, deep way to all of the people, not one spot, okay? And the next verse says, verse 24, Leviticus 9, 24, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. When the people saw it, they all shouted and fell on their faces. I think that idea of they all shouted does not mean they all had the same reaction. There are connotations to the prayer, oh God, okay? And some people are shouting for joy, and others are, Nyah! you know, it's a different reaction. There is a depth of the glory of the Lord that will be revealed that will not be able to be ignored by the saved or the skeptics. There will be a time when the glory of the Lord is revealed to all, and everyone will shout, but not all shouts will be created equal. This picture of the fire of God coming to rest on the sacrifice is what is alluded to in the book of Acts chapter 2. Although the sacrifice was not a bull or a lamb, it is the hearts of those who love Jesus. And it says in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house while they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire from where? From the Lord, appeared on and rested on each of them. We stand before God this morning, not much different than Aaron or his sons, asking him to fall in fire on the sacrifice, and we are the sacrifice. We're putting our lives on the altar and saying, okay, fire of God, fall on this. The aroma that rises from the sacrifice is one that attracts the presence and the favor of God. Can you imagine the smell of fire falling from heaven and consuming a calf? It's like this is like Casey Joe's to the nth degree. Okay, how many of you drive by Casey in your car just like, mm, you have to pull to one side. Do I need to get the car aligned? No, I'm near a barbecue place. I, so the aroma. That aroma wafts up and it attracts the presence of God. Except now we're on the altar. It's the aroma of our lives being consumed by his fire that attracts him. Leviticus 3 and other places, it calls the aroma that rises from a sacrifice pleasing to God. It's important to know that in Leviticus, all the sacrifices and the incense has got to be offered with the same fire. They sacrifice, but every time they lay out the sacrifice, and if God doesn't answer by fire, they have nothing. They don't produce a miracle. 
they ask for one, and God produces it. Everything they have in the way of proof of the favor of God is simply him showing up on their lives. Even today, without the fire of God, we don't have anything. We don't produce anything. Even if we make great sacrifices, if he doesn't visit, who cares? Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We come together, we sing these songs, we talk about laying our lives on the altar, and we say, fire come, because if you don't, all of this is for nothing. You can imagine if Aaron and his sons went through all of the rigmarole of sacrificing a, a calf, stepped back, and nothing happens. What do we do that for? We're not in this for nothing. We're in this for his fire. God brings the fire. We bring the fuel. Even in the Old Testament, it served no purpose to hoard fuel. No fuel, no fire. No fire, no glory. Like the priests of Leviticus, we provide the fuel of our lives and God provides the fire and he does what he does. So in this story, the part we're getting here is really important, especially in light of what God is doing on the earth right now because it is his desire to reveal his glory to the entire earth. And as this move that we're hearing about begins to disseminate across the nation and around the world, that is going to happen in increase. More and more people will bear witness to the glory of God and him doing something. There was a phenomenal article in, of all places, the New York Times today about what happened at Asbury. Readers of the New York Times are bearing witness to the glory of God. Some are saying, oh God, with a shout. Some are not. But they're all reacting. This is important because as a bridge family, we have a bit of a unique calling as a church, as a people, to minister to the Lord. To stand before him and to sacrifice our lives so that all people can perceive his glory and respond rightly to it. We provide the fuel, he provides the fire, and it's important that when the fire comes, it's his fire, and it's not something we made happen. Been with me long enough to know that I hate hype. Like, I, I don't like it. And I've seen things in a revival culture that eventually becomes its own fire. And they're making something happen. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Lord visiting us. If Kansas City is going to witness the glory of God, it will be because the fire of God has fallen on a sacrifice that we've offered. Now, you know what you call sacrifice without fire? It's just rotting flesh. It just stinks. It's bad. So if we're ready to give him our lives, we cry out that he would answer like he did in Leviticus because that is the only way that the aroma rises, he is pleased, and the whole world sees his glory. So with that backdrop, we're looking at Leviticus 10. Look at several verses uh, individually, but just to dive into the deep end, let me read the first three verses of Leviticus 10. You'll understand this whole concern about where the fire comes from. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized, some versions say strange, strange fire before the Lord. 
which he had not commanded them. That fire came, that fire came out from before the Lord. So that happened before they laid the sacrifice on the altar. Fire came out from before the Lord. Happens again, but in this case, the fire consumed them and they died before the Lord. That took a dark twist, didn't it? There they are, sacrificing before the Lord. They, they, yeah, they got their own fire. They didn't wait for the Lord to set fire to it. And fire comes out from the altar. Sacrifice is fine, but the priests are burned. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before the people, I will be glorified. That's not just a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. We're going to unpack that in a little bit. Because those that are near me, among those, I will be sanctified. Those who see my glory will be glorified. And this is one little throwaway sentence. And Aaron held his peace. Some peculiarities about this passage. First of all, incense, up until this point, had only ever been offered by one person at a time. So one person will go before the Lord. So from the very beginning, they're, they're bending the rules. Not supposed to have two people in there. Two people are very disobedient in relation to the offering of the sacrifice. And in that, we assume their motivation a little bit. We read that and we go, had it coming. Like, we wouldn't have done that. We don't really know their motivation, though. There may be a lot of reasons why they, why they tried this. It could have been that they wanted attention. It could have been that they thought it was their turn. It could have been that they were trying to serve the people. You know, let's stir this up a little bit. It worked last time. Might have been they didn't want to wait a week till the next time they offered a sacrifice. But they did a serious thing in a casual way, and in doing it casually, they did it wrong. And they died. Their intentions don't matter. Their behavior does. Let me tell you, even in your best intentions, if you cross the law of God, you are still out across the law of God. Your intentions don't matter. That's horribly offensive, I know. Because we want to be judged by our intentions, right? I meant well. How many of you ever try to talk yourself or talk your way out of a bind by talking about what you meant? I meant well. Yeah, but you did dumb. Okay? And we have to deal with what you did rather than what you meant. Now, we judge other people on what they did. But we want to be judged by our intentions. We don't even know what their intentions are. It doesn't really matter. Motivations are a mystery. But it's not the only mystery. We also misunderstand this idea of unauthorized or strange fire, as some translations say. Entire books have been written about this idea of strange fire. John MacArthur, who has, has written some great resources over the years, at one point in his anti-charismatic fervor, wrote a book called Strange Fire and interpreted all of this as the charismatic movement. Yeah. That's not what that was about, okay? When he says, his interpretation of that was strange to me. It's probably strange to God, too. Yeah, we don't get to do that. He's not talking about strange as in weird. He's talking about strange as in other than or unauthorized. They did what they were not supposed to do. They brought fire rather than let God provide it. We also, the other weird part here is we skip the differentiation between sanctification and holiness or glory. We'll explore that in just a second. Going backwards, let's look at the first verse and just kind of unpack this. 
So Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, took a censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. What is unauthorized or strange fire? Is it bizarre manifestations? Is it a service that's just a little too weird for us? Are we calling that strange because we don't like it? No, some people will label things strange just because it's not their experience or it's unusual. But they forget in this story, normal has already left the chat. Okay? Like, they're laying bulls on the altar and fire is coming up from the altar. It's like, this is already, we're in a supernatural environment. So it's not strange doesn't mean weird here. If the sons of Aaron do everything as planned, fire from God will consume the sacrifice. So what they're calling strange isn't strange in the sense of weird. Things are already a little weird. What these two men do is strange or unauthorized or it's not the normal way that God prescribed it. Rather than waiting for the fire of God, they contrived it on their own. Maybe their motivation was good. Maybe they wanted to experience the glory of God in a new way. Maybe they meant well, but if the strange fire that they brought before the Lord was not God's plan, they have to deal with the ramifications of that. God is more concerned with your striving and trying to make something happen than he is with anybody's weird manifestations. He just is. Weird manifestations make us nervous. When people respond to the Holy Spirit in a way that we are not accustomed to, that's weird and we distance ourselves from that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about people who are striving to make something happen within themselves. Jesus made you. Do you think he's actually surprised when you act a little weird? God is not as nervous as y'all are, okay? In that service where that person just goes completely bazonkers and you go, "Ah, what was that? God is not going, what was that? He just doesn't bother him. What bothers him is the leader who's up front who tries to make something happen. That's the problem. The strange fire is saying, okay, if he isn't going to move, we're going to move something. That's why I hate hype. Okay? I am hungry for everything God has. But it's got to be what God has rather than what we can make happen. He is more concerned that you feel you have to do something to prove to the people that he's moving than he is your genuine, even if weird, responses to the Holy Spirit. We're not here to make excuses for God or to bring our own fire in case people think he's not here. We're not nervous because he really does move among people and their physical bodies do respond to that and that's okay, but that's not what the weird part is. The weird part is they tried to make it happen. So Leviticus chapter 10, verse two. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Fire comes out of the altar, kills them. Matthew Henry lived in the late 1600s. He was a nonconformist minister that was not a part of the Church of England. Um, had kind of a tragic life. His, uh, he lost four children at infancy over the course of two, and, and a wife, um, before finally having a child and a, wife, and a wife that survived. Just kind of a, a sad story. Wrote a long, long uh, commentary on the entire Bible. When I was in Bible college, before things were online, uh, you were not considered a real Bible college student unless you had a full set of Matthew Henry commentaries on your shelf. Didn't matter if you read them or not. You had to have them. And so, you know, he's just well known as, as this uh, author and 
writes prolifically about everything, to write, you know, 15, 16 volumes on the Bible. This is his deep insight and comment to this instance. He says, it does not appear that they had orders to burn any incense at this time. Well put. It would not appear that they were instructed to do this. In their disobedience, the very thing that God's people had counted on in the past, the fire of God actually destroys them. Well, wait, weren't they hoping for the fire of God? Yeah, but not for that. Some of you have read this, and now that you realize that we really don't know their motivations, you're like, this seems kind of harsh. They meant well. But we're not measured by our motivation. We're measured on our behavior and our willingness to follow the instructions that the Lord gives us. Some of you, the Lord has spoken to about very specific things to do, and you're still waiting until you feel like it. He didn't ask you how you felt about it. There are some things he will call you to do you will never feel like. Apologize. (laughs) The Lord has spoken to some of you very clearly about someone that you are to apologize to and you don't quite feel it and you're hiding behind, I want it to be genuine. Well, why don't we start with obedience? Because motivation doesn't matter as much as behavior. And yes, you want it to be real. But if you're waiting to feel it, you're never going to do that. The distinction that God drew at this point between all of the people of the land and those who were to minister before him is really important. Look at verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You're like, I don't see what you're saying there because we don't use those words enough to to be familiar with them. The NIV says, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. And in the sight of the people, I will be honored. KJ, uh, New King James says, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. When he says I will be sanctified, he means those who come near me will have an encounter with me that has something to do with holiness, that those who stand at a distance and see my glory might not ever have. There is a difference between walking in holiness and witnessing the glory of the Lord. What is it? The whole earth will see his glory. Like every believer, non-believer, cessationist, continuist, charismatic, charismaniac, unbeliever, skeptic, Hindu, every realm that you can, every one of them at some point will see the glory of the Lord. And they will all respond in their own ways. But they will not all draw near to him. They will not all minister to him. That requires holiness. Holiness is one of the handful of words in the Christian lexicon that causes people to have back spasms, intense headaches, and induces vomiting. Okay? Because we confuse the word holiness with legalism. And if you were raised with any legalism, you're already having a twitch. Okay? Legalism, some of you go, what's legalism? God bless you. Okay? (laughs) Are there more like you? Go get them! Because legalism was the propensity to set up rules about behavior 
that was based more on the fear of what other people thought than what God really thought. Crazy rules. Hide the playing cards. The pastor's coming over. Things like that. <laughs> Some of you are like, really? Others are going, really? The Welsh revival we talked about last week, incredible move of God, towards the end got caught up in such legalism that for decades during uh, Sundays they would chain the children's swings to the ground so the kids didn't go out and play on Sunday because everyone was trying to out-holy somebody else. That's legalism. That's not what he's talking about here. Legalism is a bizarre thing. It's the fear of appearing less holy in the eyes of others, and it just makes all kinds of funny rules. Legalism has nothing to do with God's opinion, though. It's always driven by what people think in relation to the behavior that you're doing. We drift towards legalism because we value the opinions of others more than we value the opinions of God. It's the reason that this joke is funny. Why do you always take two Baptists fishing? Because if you take one, he'll drink all your beer. Because we're concerned about what everybody thinks, okay? More than we're really concerned about whatever rules we have. Some of you are like, I can't believe you told that joke. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Legalism gets us into a weird mindset and we, treat, we, we respond differently than we would if people weren't watching. That we're not, when he says those who draw near me are going to be holy, he's not talking about legalism. He's talking about them setting things aside because the Lord is asking it of them. In the book of Leviticus, where it appears to be about rules and how to conduct ourselves, the word holiness appears 87 times. And it's never about controlling people. It's about safety for those who minister to the Lord. It's not about them doing the right thing. It's about, okay, if you're going to step near me and fire is going to come out of this altar, you want to be standing in right standing with me. Because it's dangerous up close. Any Tom, Dick, or Harry can stand back in the, in the shadows and see the glory of God. If you want to minister to me, it's a different set of rules. Leviticus 20, 26 says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and separated you from the people that you should be mine. God draws a distinction between those who draw near him and those who stand at a distance and witness what he's doing. Even those who stand at a distance will see his glory, but those who draw near will participate with him in holiness. If you are hungry to see God up close in your personal life, not just come on Sundays, kind of enjoy the music, listen to the teaching, but encounter him in your life, if you want that more than anything else, the price and reward of drawing close to him is that you live differently than you would have been allowed to if you didn't care about that at all. We expect more from those who want to draw close, especially when we're talking about other people, don't we? We look at other people and go, really? You're going to draw close with that attitude? My oldest son, Jackson, is 30 today. And... Uh, Years ago, he was working at Chick-fil-A. And he's working at Chick-fil-A, working the drive-thru, uh, which is essentially take the bag they give you, hand it to the guy in the car. That's, it's his whole job, just hand it to the guy in the car. Well, somehow along the line, they gave him the wrong bag. So he hands the wrong bag. But he doesn't know, you know, a bag's a bag. Here you go. Well, the guy gets so angry that he stops, comes in, and is yelling at the counter, I want to talk to the kid that gave me this bag. And the person behind the counter 
you know, threw him under the bus. Let me go get him. And uh, brings Jackson out. And if you know Jackson, just the happiest, warmest guy in the world. Hey, hey, I'm from the car. The guy goes ballistic about him giving him the wrong sandwich. And Jackson says, well, you know, I'm sorry. It's the one they give me. Let me fix it. I'll, I'll make it right. The guy gets so angry that in the Chick-fil-A, he pulls the sandwich out of the bag and throws it at him. Jackson's like, you know, dodging sandwiches, you know, or the fries coming next, what's up, you know. Eventually, the manager comes out, talks the guy down off the ledge, tells him, hey, listen, you, you're a little bit unhinged here. You probably need to leave. Uh, we'll replace your meal, but you need to go. And we will give you a free meal next time. Just come through and, you know, tell the guy that you're the guy who threw the sandwich at the guy. <laughs> you know, we're going to give him a free meal, but let's make, let's make him own it, you know. So Jackson goes back to the drive through line, and his heart's like, you know, kind of pounding. He's calmed down. Uh, after he gets off his shift, he goes to a church service that night. He kind of wanders in late. He's entering into worship. And, he's like, and he realizes on the third row, the sandwich-throwing guy is standing in the third row just worshiping his guts out. Now, we hear that story and we go, something is wrong with that. You can't throw a sandwich at a guy at Chick-fil-A and then go do this, you know? You can't do that. There are rules that we have expectations about other people who draw near. There are expectations on us. You want to draw near? Some of you are like, well, I'm not going to throw a sandwich at a guy. No, but there are things. There are things the Lord is asking you to lay down, and it's no less offensive than a thrown sandwich. And there you are. He's like, easy. You want to draw near? That requires holiness. People who bring their own fire, get crispy. Like, you really want to think about how you approach the altar, because you're going to climb on it. And you can't do that. Let's make it a little more relatable because you're not the sandwich-throwing crowd. Maybe it's a TV show that you love that appeals to your darker side because of its content. And uh, you're thinking, yeah, everybody's watching it. But you want more of an experience with the Lord they're getting, so they can, you can't. Just, is that fair? You want to draw near. They can, you can't. Maybe it's lingering a little too long in the office gossip session. Encounter, you know, entering into a conversation, you know that, oh, it's harmless, and people are working out their frustrations. Yeah, they can. You can't. Let's see, it's almost March. Maybe it's taking a break on your taxes that everybody takes, but it involves you putting a different number on the page than is accurate. You know, like everybody I know does that. Oh, they all can. You can't. And you think, well, I don't want to really apply a different standard to myself. People will think I'm weird or I'm better than them. If you're worried about, weird, worried about what people are thinking, first of all, they're not thinking about you that much anyway. And it's not elitism. It's not saying we're better than other people. It's self-preservation. They can maybe, but we can't. Everyone's going to see the glory of the Lord at some point. And if you want to be in that category, you can. But if you want to draw near to him, you can't. This has massive implications on this house. Because we are hungry to draw near to him. And that means there are things that are allowed to those that would stay outside that as we draw near, we go, okay, they can, but we can't. 
So these two offer this strange fire, this unauthorized fire, something other than what God was doing, and the fire meant for the sacrifice consumes them instead. And the Lord says, through Moses, everybody will see my glory, but those who come near will participate in my holiness. And Aaron held his peace. You have anything to say, Aaron? No. I'm good. You ever been in class when a group of kids get in trouble and then the teacher says, you have anything to say? No. What are you saying there? I am not with them. I am not as those who offer strange fire. Any comment, Aaron? No. And what follows are two sets of instructions. The first set is from Moses to the people where he directs them, okay, here's how we care for the bodies. Okay, (laughs) carry these guys off, get them out of here. Then he tells someone other than Aaron and his direct descendants to do that because they're the priests, they're not supposed to touch dead bodies. Then he tells Aaron, don't mourn. He says, let others bewail the burning the Lord has kindled. Yes, sir. You are right, God. You are right, God. One of the hardest and most important things to to learn to say is you are right, God. And then something unique happens. Aaron hears from the Lord himself. Now, up until now, it's been through Moses. But now he speaks to Aaron. For the first time, we have this record of Aaron hearing God's voice. Leviticus uh, 10, 8 and 9. The Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you. So when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever among your generations. He tells him, when you come here to stand before the Lord and do the thing that you were... Don't come in here having had a little bit too much wine. This is a sober moment. Some scholars actually suggest this is to infer that the original two guys had been drinking would not be the first time that a little too much to drink contributed to a really bad idea. God emphasizes that to minister to him is a holy thing, and others might be able to, but you cannot. Aaron perhaps also thought, you know, I did worse than this with the whole golden calf thing. Like, he's thinking back in his history. Moses went up the mountain, Aaron gathered everybody's jewelry, melted down, made a god. I mean, that, you know, that happened. Aaron didn't get struck down by fire, but Aaron wasn't a priest when it happened either. When you step forward to be near him, the bar is different. And you can't say, I'm a part of the crowd and I stand near and minister to the Lord. Let's just make it ridiculously simple here. Let's say next Sunday... Jesus wanders in in physical form. Comes in, gets his donut, because you know he would. Finds a seat. You come in. Do you want to sit near him? Yes. Like, I want to be like John the Beloved. I just want to lean over on him. Hope this isn't awkward for you, Jesus. I'm just singing songs to you. I'm sitting near you. I, I, I think we would all say, I want to do that. Are you willing to do what he's told you to do so that you can sit next to him? Are we willing to say others can, but I can't? Why? I want to sit next to him. I want to be right with him. Now, you are without a doubt close to somebody, close enough to somebody that you know 
when something bothers them and maybe nobody else will pick it up, right? Back in probably 2006, we are at a huge conference. So we're at this huge conference, 12,000 people. Dwayne Roberts is leading it. Some of you know Dwayne, terribly handsome guy. We're often mistaken for each other. That's true. Uh, never when we're together, because he's much taller than I am, but he's bald. He's got thick glasses. It's actually the whole deal, but we get mistaken for each other. So he calls me like at 7 in the morning, the second day of the conference. He goes, I got an idea. This morning, when I'm supposed to go out on stage, you go out and just make announcements and just pretend to be me. So I think, okay, that'll be funny. So I do that, and like, and it's announcements. Nobody's listening anyway. And unless they're really looking at the screens, nobody even catches it. And I'm making announcements and making jokes as Dwayne, and nobody even, eventually he comes out, and, and uh, we do this whole scene like I'm tr- trying to, impersonating him at a ride. It's funny. For the next three days, everywhere I went, people would look at me and go, hi, Dwayne, and then they'd laugh. And at first, I'm like, oh, that's funny. Next day, I'm like, oh, thanks. Third day, I'm like, get away from me. It's not funny. I was going through this whole identity crisis anyway, and now everybody thinks I'm Dwayne or thinks it's funny that I think I'm Dwayne. And my Jackson at the time, who would have been obviously much younger, he's probably like 14. Don't ask me to do math while I'm preaching. But uh, he looks at me and he goes, you're kind of hating this, aren't you? I said, oh, I'm hating it. He goes, yeah. He was close enough to know the things that I didn't like and pick up on it pretty quickly. I want to be close enough to Jesus that I know the things he doesn't like. Not just what he tolerates, but I mean I'm close enough to, oh, Jesus, that bothered you. I said that, and immediately that bothered you, and I want to back that up. Because others might be able to, but I can't. Because they'll all see your glory and they'll all say, oh God, oh God, oh God, with varying degrees of panic, but only a certain number will be near you. And I want to obey so I am near you. There's something that warms your heart and draws you to people who understand what bothers you and and they guard you from it, doesn't it? It's endearing. You can be that to Jesus. Here are more of God's words to Aaron about how important it is to the people of holiness who stand near the presence of God. This is God tipping his hand, saying, if you get this, you'll understand. Verses 10 and 11. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. He says, you are going to go through life being able to determine with, okay, that's godly, that's not. And I want to stick with the holy and not with the common. If there has been a trend in the church that worries me, it is our propensity to take common things and present them as holy or holy things and treat them as common. Those are not the people who get to draw near to to the altar without danger in their lives. I want to ask if Zion and the team would come back. I want to ask the Lord to bring to our memory this morning, all week, this phrase, others can, I can't. Others can, I can't. 
and ask him, Lord, what are the things that would be allowable to somebody who stands at a distance and eventually will see your glory that are not allowable for those who draw near you? What are the things that bother you, even in my own life, that I could eradicate? And I don't because I don't think they're that important, but they're important to you. What are the things that others can, but I can't? Stand with me if you would. Father, as we come to you in worship, I ask that you would speak to us about the idea of holiness and standing near you at any expense, Lord. Our lives are on the altar here. We are offering you our sacrifice. And we want you to come. Let's just worship this morning. Devil may crew for you Do whatever you want to Whatever you want to I will make room for you Do whatever you want to Whatever you want to Yeah, just sing this out adjustments in our own heart when you speak to us and say others can and you can't Lord we say that to be near you is worth it to stand before the throne is worth it
morning as the Lord is speaking to you about things that have to go. Resist the temptation to justify because maybe others can. But he is speaking to you about, if you want to draw near to me, things have to go. Let me tell you, friends, it is worth the price. It is worth the price. Father, we love you. We ask that you speak clearly as we as a people as we draw near to you. That we would be able to stand before you really in safety. Having made the adjustments that need to be made. We love you, Jesus. God bless you. Have a great weekend.